Greetings, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Before we get started, if you enjoy the podcast and would like to help me out, please do share it on social media, tell a friend, tell your mum, leave a review on Apple Podcast, or just let me know you enjoy it, send me a mail, whatever. So, without further ado, let's head to Wales and talk about shoes. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff, and today about shoes. My guest is in Wales, and uh, would you like to introduce yourself, Ruth? I would, yeah. My name's Ruth Emily Davy. I'm a shoemaker, and I've been running my brand Red Shoes for nearly 20 years now. Well, with it, within the apprenticeship as well that I did. It's, yeah, I've been making them for nearly 20 years, so nearly half my life. Now, getting into shoemaking does seem like kind of a sort of unusual thing. Shall we loop right back to the start and how you initially got interested in it? So I was kind of a free um, art student when I was 17, 18, and it was one of those situations where it just came along and I thought it was a perfectly normal thing to for someone to say, oh, do you want to be my, my apprentice? I just, you know, I, I was at a gallery, a local gallery opening, like an art gallery, and I knew about Al because he was part of a lot of people that moved to um, from London to Wales in the 70s and my parents were also part of that contingent. So we were kind of family friends, but I didn't know him very well. And so we were chatting one evening at this gallery thing. He had a glass of pink champagne, um, which often that's how you'd find him. And uh, he was just chatting away about what he what he did and and saying that he wanted somebody um, with an art based background um, and somebody that he knew um, at least yeah knew a bit about, and he wanted to pass on his work to so. You know, essentially, he was, I think he was 60 at the time, and he didn't have any children or any sort of beneficiaries, so he was looking for someone to pass on his skills to, and um, that became me. It started as a a one-day-a-week Saturday job, and that Saturday I went round to his house, and and that was the beginning, really. I'd just finished art college, and I was in between deciding whether to go off and do university like everybody else but I just had this kind of feeling that I wanted to do something a bit more practical but I didn't really know what that was and weirdly in my last year of art college which was yeah when I was 16 17 um, I made a pair of sheepskin boots out of an old coat and I, I just literally cut it cut this coat I couldn't find anything that I wanted to wear I was looking around and I thought, well, I'll just make them myself. They're absolutely awful. I've still got them. But for me, they were <laughs> a pair of shoes that I made myself. And then it led into this kind of whole journey of making shoes, which, looking back on it, was totally unrelated, but somehow related. And, um, yeah, I mean, I wanted to do something practical. I didn't want to go to union and do loads of kind of coursework again which I'd just been doing for the last two years I wanted to do something hands-on and creative 
Um, and where we live in Wales, I mean, it, everything's very sort of um, sparse and it's not like these opportunities come up very often. And especially now I get asked all the time, you know, can I be an apprentice and, you know, will you let me come and learn from you? And in a way it takes a lot to actually um, take somebody on and have them working personally with you. So Al was in a unique position because he, he'd lived on his own for however many years. Um, you know, it was, it was living in this little seaside cottage, um, working from home, having customers visit him, but, you know, very small scale. Um, he was pretty well known, but he was small scale and he was, in a sense, kind of quite, for want of a better word, lonely in a way. He was kind of his own person, but he didn't have he didn't really have like a family or anything so I guess he was he was coming from quite a unique position so it also meant that he could teach me in a way that was very all immersive so the first you know I mean he'd never done it before either he'd never had an apprentice before that so you know I turned up at his house and you know the first thing he did was say here's your scalpel and here's your pencil and here's your apron and we're going to start right away we're not going to talk about it we're going to just get on with it and we just had this kind of unique relationship in a way which stretched over kind of you know the following kind of um 20 odd years afterwards which looking back on it was you know it was quite a, a unique journey we we always got along we had our arguments but we kind of got along in a way that was very um yeah sort of mentor to apprentice kind of relationship and that sort of stood a long test of time really until he died two years ago so that's how it, it was kind of old old it sounds kind of old-fashioned the way the master took on the apprentice not, yeah. not at all like things would be today. no i mean yeah i mean it, it was but i mean in a way neither of us knew what we were in for neither of us had a had a clue what we were doing really it's just that you know the parameters were there in the sense that he wanted to teach somebody. He was he was pretty unique. If you ever talked to him, I mean, you'd never forget him. He was like this sort of Marmite character that people either got on with or not. You know, he was very opinionated, very kind of sassy. And he, he'd come from London, from like the advertising world in the 70s and up sticks, moved to Wales and then started making shoes and self-taught, really, Um over a number of years and he was so kind of full of himself and sort of you know to this kind of 17 year old art student who was you know could barely answer the phone without kind of yeah um, I don't know <laughs> you know he used to he used to kind of like um tease me about it later he was like you just wouldn't even answer the phone you're too shy and then later on you know he kind of in a way brought out the side of of me which was creative but he kind of tonified it or, or kind of um you know he spent so much time kind of showing me how to kind of make the shoes but also how to kind of market yourself uh photograph your, your work and get yourself out there and he never actually wanted an apprentice that worked underneath him he wanted a kind of equality in it he wanted a shoemaker he wanted to bring a shoemaker into the world and say hey I've created 
helped create this person so so there was kind of a it was a kind of a strange thing in a way that there wasn't you know he used to kind of rave on about it all the time that you know we shouldn't all be working underneath each it should be equal and um yeah i mean but then when i got successful <laughs> he also had a, a you know he'd have a good moan about it when he felt like it as well you know along the way but that's the sort of person he was we just yeah so yeah, um, that's how it all started. Um, that was in 2005 and it was a five year long apprenticeship unofficially as in I was at his house going there every week, self-funding it at first by working different jobs and then going in any spare time that I had. Um, and we joked about that as well because you know I lived about an hour away so I'd get the bus and it would take sort of two bus journeys to get there and you know, it was quite a mission, um, but there was dedication there somehow. And, and I think s- sort of two or three years in, he was saying, oh, you know, you should really kind of get your own clients now. And so I started to kind of make them for the odd friend or family member. Um, and, you know, looking back on that now as well, it, it's kind of you know, where I started, it was just kind of, you know, it would take me sort of months to make one pair. Um, and I, I, it took a while to sort of nurture the skill, but also the, the confidence to get out there, really, into the world. And at that, I mean, I think it was two, I think it was 2010 when I won this award with the Balvenie Master of Crafts Awards. And that was the beginning of me finding my own workshop and starting my own shop and and brand essentially so yeah it was a five year long unofficial at the bench apprenticeship which nowadays is actually very rare it's hard to get that kind of one-to-one tuition in a lot of ways I think people are um even if they do like a shoe making course you know they they're taught to design rather than make the shoes and that's where there's a lot of lacking in, in the sort of transfer of skills really here in the UK, I think. Now, you mentioned that Al came from a advertising background in London and it seemed like that helped him with the promotion and mm. presentation photos of shoes. But as I understand, he was also a deeply alternative character with many interests in this quite left field yeah was he a, a hippie kind of guy coming to a hippie commune in wales a sort of yeah he was a bit of a one-off i mean you could call it hippie but he um he's so he started or helped found one of the first health food shops in wales that was in Aberystwyth, and that was in 78 i believe and yeah, you know, he was, he was part of this whole crowd of people. I mean, hippie is a loose word for it, but there was a lot of people around that time that were kind of moving out of the city, wanting to kind of live a bit more of a freer life. Um, macrobiotic diets was very heavily kind of going on at that time, so that was where him and my parents kind of um, met on that level. And it was kind of this, you know, era really in Wales. There's a whole book about it. Um, of people that moved to the area and and sort of started out and brought these old farmhouses for next to nothing and then um, brought up their children here and, you know, started the, the, a life here, really. So, yeah, he, he was, he, yeah, it's hard to put 
really a, a label on Al, really, because he was just so sort of flamboyant and of his own kind, you know. I guess there's some tr- traditional aspects of him, but he was very creative and um, he really dedicated himself to his work. So he just, you know, after the Healthy Shot closed, I think it was about a five-year-long project, and then he'd started... He was into the sort of natural... Um, way of life whether that was with diet or with lifestyle and one of the things that was going on at that time was that he was doing like macrame knot work like rope work on um and he was learning like sailor's knots and things like that and so Uh he started really by making these like rope soles which were a kind of a square plait and what he liked about it was that it was natural jute twine that he was using. And what happened was when you wore them on your on your foot, essentially a very simple strap sandal, but with a rope sole, your your feet were sort of grounded and you would um, feel the ground and the, your feet would mould to the rope. Um, or rather, the, the rope would mould to your feet. So there was this sort of aspect of it that was, yeah, very natural and... At that time, he never used leather. He was into kind of, you can see the kind of eras of his work. Um, And he started off making sort of fabric uppers with a rope sole. And he had this woman who came and this Indian woman who who, um, came and asked him to make her a pair of these rope soles. And they were like this huge kind of knots, you know. And then he kind of fine-tuned it and sat there and made them very kind of out of much finer um, knot work and and basically refined his technique, which took probably years. Um, So after the healthy shop closed, I think that's what he spent his time doing. And he published a book on how to make them and how to actually repair them yourself, um, which was one of the things that he, yeah, was, yeah, trying to promote really. It was, you know, make yourself something and then repair it yourself. So that kind of philosophy kind of, in a way, was kind of, you know, brought in at the beginning and then was there throughout the rest of his work, even though at some point he started using leather and realised that as a material for shoes, it was actually a really great material. Um, So he started using leather, but he used like a really thick leather that would kind of, again form to your feet so you wouldn't have kind of any constriction or um you know any kind of uh yeah tightness on your foot you would actually be able to just move as you naturally would and in that way the designs haven't changed since the 70s and essentially because he's always focused on foot shaped shoes so he would literally draw around your feet and actually make them that shape or even wider, actually. He started off making really wide shoes, and then he started to bring them in a little bit and make them a little bit more, I don't know, a bit more kind of wearable, essentially. Um, and, yeah, uh, the rest became kind of historical, really. He started, I mean, he still made shoes from various different fabrics, but he used leather as the main thing, and he found a really special leather as a sole instead of the rope sole, which he ended up... Use, you know, he, he still made them, but they were more kind of slippers 
for around the house because they're not sort of great for outdoors in the UK. So he, he found this very special leather that was five to six mil thick and very bendy um, and not actually used in traditional leather shoes um, because, you know, the oak bark tanned kind of leather soles are often kind of quite sort of um, sturdy and, and they don't bend with your foot, at least not straight away. They take quite a long time to bend. So he liked this material and that's what replaced his uh, rope soles. This making of shoes for actual customers' feet does sound very at odds with much of the traditional footwear industry mm. where the shape is king and you just have to make your foot fit into whatever shape they're made to. Mm. I mean, lots of people that look at our shoes, they say, oh, they're, they're wide, you know. But it's, it's kind of changing nowadays because you've got the whole barefoot movement and people that want... So when I first started, people wanted... Or can you make them narrower here at the toe box, you know, make them look narrower? And now people want them so wide that they're much wider than their feet. You know, the whole the whole kind of um, <laughs> movement has changed a little bit. And, you know, yes, there's fashioned and there's traditional men's shoes and, well, women's shoes that are kind of incredibly beautiful but not necessarily good for your feet or not necessarily the right shape for your feet so that's where I guess um what we make is is trying to do that is trying to essentially be kind of like a covering for your foot and when they're made sort of bespoke for you then it means that they're kind of they are your shoes they're they're never going to be anybody else's it also sounded like Al was into a sustainable way of thinking before that was even a way of thinking. Yeah. By he, making a book on how you can repair your own shoes. Yeah, I mean, he was in many ways ahead of his time in that sense. Um, yeah, I mean, he, he was, I guess, because he'd, he'd learned how to do sort of... Um, letter writing and the ad the ad agencies and things that he worked for were pretty up there at the time but what he didn't like was that he was working on things like smoking campaigns and fag packets so he was kind mm. of you know using his skills for the wrong reason so I think that's one of the things that actually set him in a completely different direction because he realized he didn't he, he wasn't on board with promoting smoking, for example, even though he did smoke over over the years on and off, you know, <laughs> it was a total kind of, um, but yeah, he, so he wanted to sort of do good in the world, really. I mean, he read, I think he said that he read that book by Rachel Carson, Silent Spring, have you read that book? Right. And he read yeah. that book and then thought, right, that's it, I want to move to Wales. He, he actually went to America first, he went to Boston to study macrobiotic um, cooking, and he he really got completely into that way of thinking, and you know he kind of kept that up throughout his whole life actually. But you know that's that was what he was kind of into at the time, and then he was kind of practicing tai chi, and he was yeah, I mean yeah, he was a dancer, he was all sorts of things really. Um, yeah, 
but the shoes were his kind so, of babies in a sense like that's what he really dedicated his life to to making because he really believed in them and and he you know what was kind of very clear over those 45 years that he made them was how many people that he helped how many people that came back to him and said you've actually helped me to walk you know and walk further and dance again and you know the feedback that he'd be getting back from his clients would be just so amazing that that's probably what kind of kept kept him going throughout really you know it's making something that's actually really good for your feet and that has healing benefits and that's what he believed in more than anything else it does sound more meaningful than selling cigarettes yes yeah I've got all of his old campaigns upstairs and, you know, all of his, um, yeah, his art direction uh, journey, really, and, and the fag packets, like, and, yeah, it's funny, at some point maybe a book will have to happen and show the show the whole history of his life, really, but that will take a long time, I think, to do that. So you were his apprentice for five years. What happened mm. then? So in 2010, I won a workshop with a local art centre in Aberystwyth, which was um, basically a kind of a unit, a Thomas Heatherwick unit, which they were kind of running a, a competition every year and they would give a year for free, uh, free rent um, to a local artist or, you know, somebody deserving. And so I won that. That was my first workshop. And... I think that was the beginning of me moving, well, being kind of kicked out of the nest, essentially. I was, you know, apprenticeship nest and, you know, told to go and kind of make it on my own, really. So it kind of happened at the right time um, for many different reasons. And I was before that I was working in his, you know, I'd started in his house next to his workbench. Then he was like, right, you need, I need my own space now. You go in the garden shed. So that was my first workshop is the garden shed, (laughs) the bottom of the garden. He charged me 32 quid a week rent. And, um, you know, he was like, yep, you're going to pay rent. So that that gets you onto the kind of, you know, the kind of um, responsible thing of paying bills, you know. And then I got this workshop basically packed up my very few tools and things that I had then and arrived at this workshop, which was this vast, very modern space um, with my few tools and some rolls of leather. And I thought, right, okay, this is it. <laughs> so I was I was kind of uh, thrown into deciding, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And I didn't have any money. I didn't have any real clue what I was going to do really, but I did have supportive friends and family and and people that were starting to know that I was his apprentice and that I was starting out on my own. So that's really what started off the first orders is people popping in. It was, you know, in a kind of vibrant art centre where people could access, yeah, access it easier than coming to someone's house, for example. And so it was kind of the first year of me um, being on my own and Al would come in and he'd, you know, help me get some equipment and you know so many amazing little synchronicities but one of them was that the first singer machine that I had which is is still my machine now it was um kind of 
a woman rang up one day and she said, oh, I've got this post machine, you know, do you want it? And 50 quid, it's yours, you know. So I went round to her house and it was actually the machine that Al learnt on from... Because uh, back in the 70s there was this kind of cooperative of four women and they um, were making sort of, yeah, kind of um, shoes basically in the in the area and he... He got taught by one of them on this machine how to do a few things on the uppers. And then this same machine was the one that I started on. It was like a strange little kind of link 20 years later, you know. Um, Mm. So, yeah, that was my first machine. That's my machine that I use now. And so the the kind of things started to come together and I started to advertise in um, Yoga and Health magazine and a few kind of craft magazines you know just kind of small little advertorials and then um I guess what really kind of helped was winning this award with the Balvenie which was in 2011 I think and it basically kind of threw open this kind of door really and got me some kind of coverage in a few different um national um, newspapers and magazines and things and suddenly it was like I had this kind of level that I'd got to where you know I mean Kevin McLeod was promoting it and um, you know it was kind of really well publicized and it was um, it was kind of um, it it meant being part of a whole load of other craftspeople who were kind of singled out for what they were doing so it gave me a bit of a kind of elevated position I suppose all of a sudden and that was it I started getting you know phone calls from all over the place and people wanted me to make their shoes and I've still got clients today that have come from that and you know that kind of boosted my confidence I suppose as well and um, it made me a fully fledged shoemaker I suppose after that point so I spent this the, a year in that workshop and then I was offered to keep it on if I wanted to, but I actually decided to move into my farmhouse that I was living in. And that was just outside Machantleth, which is where we are now, um, this tiny little Welsh town, 2,000 people or something. Very, It's, it's pretty small. But the area is is really beautiful, and I'd, I'd, I was living here at the time, and, you know, I had this kind of... Um, workshop attached to the house and I just moved into that and that was my sort of first workshop working from home and I was kind of I think that was about 2012 and I was pretty kind of you know happy working from home and doing what Al had done really which was set up work but be able to tandem kind of live and do some gardening and then go and make some shoes you know like live that way which was a kind of a bit of a freedom I suppose um so mm. yeah that's what I was kind of I was thought I would work from home and that would be it but um in the end what's happened is because we've got this kind of small town uh it was a few miles down the road um and there's this kind of quite a quiet sort of it's got a quietness to it. It used to be, well, it's a market town, basically. So once a week we have a market and everybody's out and about. But it's kind of quite a sort of an old, 
it's kind of the ancient capital of Wales. You know, we used to have like the um, first parliament here and, and all sorts. And it, there's quite a lot of independent shops and it's not kind of infiltrated by big chains. It's quite small and independent. And the community here is is very tight and, and it's very kind of um, somewhere that's got a very strong sense of community, really. And so that was kind of the reason for living here anyway. But then this shop came up in the town and I decided to do a pop-up shop because we have the comedy festival every year, which is really busy. We get hundreds of people from all over the world. And I thought, well, nobody knows I'm here, really, you know, and it would just add a bit of interest to the high street to have somebody sitting there making some shoes and they can pop in and out and have a look at them. And that decision became a uh, a big one in a way because I kept the shop and I never left it. Um, well, I moved eventually, but I've always, I, since then I've had a shop in town and that's been kind of my um, platform, I suppose, for not even having to advertise anymore and it was kind of this natural transition of um, having a shop and people being able to kind of access you but seeing you make them at the same time and that was really important you know people were so supportive about it that it kind of meant I couldn't really go back home (laughs) I couldn't go back to my home workshop because it was kind of people were so happy to have you know this kind of I don't know just the the noise of sewing machines and seeing looking through the window and seeing somebody make you know it's such an unusual thing nowadays and so that's yeah so I've moved twice since then but I've stayed in the town and we've just um, taken on this building which is like a four-story Victorian building which is now the sort of home of, of red shoes so Okay, yeah. at this point, it's not taking you several months to make a single pair. No, it's more like three weeks to make a make a whole pair um, from start to finish, depending on what the client needs. You know, whether they need several fittings and that kind of thing. But it's about three weeks of work, not three months like it was before. <laughs> <laughs> so. How has your making of shoes differed from what Al taught you back when you were an apprentice? I mean, there's various aspects and the philosophy is the same as Alan's, but whoever's making the shoes puts a little bit of themselves into their work. So I think that I am just a different personality to Alan. So I've kind of done my own thing and and used different materials or gone in a slightly different direction um it's hard to describe really but I guess there's a kind of femininity to it slightly more um than his work and you know now we now that he's passed away we're going through all his kind of hundreds of of pairs that he's made over the years you know and it's kind of they're kind of collector's items now, really. So we're kind of polishing them up and going through them and and sort of labelling them and archiving them. Um, and it's interesting to see how things have changed over the years because he was quite into kind of these really thick leathers, you know, and then it was kind of soft leathers to really allow the feet to kind of mould. Um, and I guess I've gone off on my own tangent with the sort of materials that I like using, the colours and the combinations and 
and also the client base is different to ours. He would get a lot of people that, well, a lot of men actually would be more inclined to go to Alan, and a lot of women would be more inclined to come to me. So that they did know about both of us, and then they would, you know, while he was still alive, he was still making shoes until the day before he died. So he, you know, he was, um, yeah, he he had certain people that would just want to go to him. And there was other people that would want to come to me. So, yeah. I mean, I've got two people now who work for me as well. Well, three, really, but um, it's kind of a an apprenticeship. Again, it's not really an official thing. It's just the right person coming along at the right time, plus being a mother as well. I've got two other children and I'm having my third. You know, you have to be able to kind of give some of the work kind of you know you can't do it all yourself so that's been a big thing for me over the past sort of eight years or so um is transitioning between being a maker and being the one doing absolutely everything and then actually having to find ways to um yeah to continue but also balance being yeah being a parent as well which is not always an easy easy um easy job <laughs> as anybody else will know so yeah for those listening trying to sort of visualize what your shoes are like could you compare them to say a traditional sort of northamptonshire classic mm. traditional british shoe yeah i mean our shoes my shoes are very simple in a sense so they're they're kind of an outsold stitched um what we call slip lasted shoe which means that the stitching is on the outside they're not a traditional kind of um gentleman's shoe which is you know all hand stitched and everything else they're kind of a lot more simple in their construction so they're kind of made from an upper outsole stitch onto a sole and then lasted to the shape of the foot so they're, they're made from leather and then we fully line them and, you know, it means that they kind of look more like a wider shoe. They look kind of, um, yeah, they're not tapered at the end or pointy. They're kind of, you know, very kind of natural to look at. That You could call them natural, I suppose, is probably one way of, of talking about them. Um, to me, that, that's what shoes are, you know, but I mean, there's so many different ways of making shoes and there's lots of traditional shoes that are made in, you know, some very beautiful kind of uh, techniques, you know, that are just, yeah, they're just, it's just a completely different way of making them, I suppose. You know, there's there's kind of a tradition in the kind of outsold stitch shoes, which is completely different to the traditional men's shoes that you see made in Northampton so there's a simplicity to them really but in a way the simplicity is that your feet are they're an extension of your feet and they're not kind of um I mean I've had arguments with loads of different shoemakers where you know they say well no you've got to bring it in and and sort of uh, make the the metatarsal arch you know kind of narrower to pull the foot in because the the foot should be pulled in and my argument is that actually the the foot should be able to move naturally and actually be a foot you know just 
kind of allow the muscles and and actually be able to to move and kind of not be at all kind of constrained in any way um but also look nice at the same time <laughs> so well, I mean, as as humans, we are born without shoes, so yeah. you'd think our feet would naturally be able to function without being covered in anything. So it does make sense that mm. a shoe would follow the feet and not try to shape the feet. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's I guess it's a personal choice as well. Like, I never really grew up as a teenager wearing pointy high-heeled shoes like a lot of girls would. I always wanted to wear something that was kind of rounded in shape and comfortable because I didn't like the feeling of constriction. That's not everybody's choice, but nowadays it's it's much more people's choice than it ha- I think it ha- ever has been. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, personally, I like wearing something that I can't even feel on my foot, and that's what my shoes feel like, and that's what people find um the most comfortable is it's like not wearing anything on your feet and you know in a way because they're made from leather they're very natural they warm they're regulated by your body um and it just feels like you're quite grounded and i think that so many shoes now are just have, have, have components are full of plastic and foam and you know over supporting and over over doing everything and actually what we need is is just to be supported into the shoe so you're not flopping around but actually also allowed to spread into the front of the shoe where you can kind of you know feel your toes and your toes are your muscles of your feet are are more dexterous you're more stable on your feet you know our feet are so important and they're obviously kind of the furthest thing away from our brains we often forget forget about them but they're connected to our whole body and um I think that we get a lot of people that kind of have foot pain and all sorts of different problems like bunions hammer toes all sorts of plantar fasciitis like all these different foot problems that have come from often come from wearing badly fitted shoes or kind of spent in yeah lifetimes in things that are just not good for your feet and that's a lot of our client base, I suppose, is people that have kind of gone on that journey, discovered the horrendous pain that you can be at the end of it, and then they just want to value the fact that actually they just want something that's going to be made for them and made to be really good for your feet. So that's why we do what we do, I suppose. You mentioned plastic. I imagine you're not a huge fan of vegan leather. I get asked regularly to make vegan shoes and I always say no because I don't agree with replacing leather for plastic-based materials. I've got some pineapple leather. It looks like carpet underlay. I'm not willing to use it on my shoes because <laughs> um, it's got a plastic coating on the top of it and it just it wouldn't degrade anyway, or at least it would take a very long time to. If somebody came with something that is a good alternative to leather, then I would definitely try it out by all means. Um, There's people trying to make mushroom leather. There's people talking about making seaweed leather. Definitely would would give it a go. But I think that leather is 
such an incredible material and if you use it in the scale where it's not on a mass scale then it is a waste material and it's even tanned with waste materials and I think that we I think it kind of deserves something on its own I think with leather you know and once you've learned to work with it it's such an incredible material it's actually alive and as a as a covering for your feet or as a material for wearing on your feet is it's very natural and it feels unlike anything else um so yeah i i don't like the idea of going away from using it but i do like the idea of using it in that small scale way where we're not kind of you know creating a mass industry just for making shoes for example You'd be a perfect match for someone else I had on the podcast a year or two ago, Billy Tannery. They oh. make um, they make things out of uh, goat leather. Yeah. So they source and tan the goat leather. They've okay. made shoes, they've made bags and various things. Because the goats get a really raw deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, they're just bred for the milk and a little bit of meat and really mm. a lot of waste product. But Yeah. Being able to use the goat leather for shoes, very, very soft and nice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've used all sorts. I mean, I've, yeah, tried out loads of different types of leather. The the main, I mean, there's there's supply chain issues going on where leather's going up in um, costs a lot, but we're very small scale. So if somebody wants a specific colour, which a lot of people are attracted to the colour and they want something that's kind of lined in pink with a lime green front and a red heel, you know. So <laughs> you have to provide a bit of options. So I definitely think that some of our leathers are definitely chrome tanned, you know, they're not naturally tanned. But our recent collaboration with a, a local lady who tans leather, um, it comes in one colour. It's from an animal that was slaughtered locally, grown up in the field next door slaughtered locally and then tanned by her locally and it's just sort of this one sort of deep rich chestnut tan and people are just going mad for it that's what they want they walk in and they see that and they see the texture of it and the fact that it's so tactile and and then they try it on and it's like something that's so soft but so warm and insulating at the same time um that yeah people are completely in love with it they don't want the red shoes anymore they want this specific kind of locally tanned leather even though it costs a lot more i don't know if you realize i don't know if you realize how incredibly directed and spot on your advertising is right at this moment now it's sort of going (laughs) i mean oh i can come to this little town in wales i can see the workshop through the window oh the leather is from a named animal up the, up the yeah, road yeah. here and it's all texture i mean wow yeah <laughs> and, and then again with your apprenticeship and this i mean it's it's like moving back to how things were mm. hundreds of years ago where you had yeah. your village shoemaker yeah doing all this locally yeah and, and making it, things it's completely well, the opposite it? yeah completely the opposite of way the way everything is going otherwise mm. where you're outsourcing production to mm. somewhere in the Far East. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the great rise and fall of British Industrial Revolution, isn't it? It's kind of 
you know, we used to have a shoemaker in, in every street corner. And we're, apparently, we're the 49th in this town, Machanklath, which is a very old town. I did a talk at a heritage group recently, and they said, you're the 49th shoemaker to be in this town. And I thought, wow, that's, in a way, that's not that many, is it? But it's also a lot for, you know, these great blank spaces of time where there wasn't anybody um you know, whenever that last was, I think it was, um, well, we were in the shop next door um, before we moved in here, and that used to be a shoemaker's, and that was, I think, 35 years ago. So, yeah, I mean, there's a this kind of um, incredible history to shoemaking, but it's gone through lots of ups and downs, and it's not exactly a kind of easy way to make money or anything. It takes a lot of work and and sort of, you know, I know my shoes are a certain type of shoe, but, you know, you kind of have to find your market. And you, and it's not everybody that can walk in and afford a four or £500 pair, pair of shoes. But people right now are really valuing the fact that they're made for them and that they're made here. And that's kind of, you know, it's, it's only kind of when you've gone through different, these different levels of, you know, having cheap shoes available everywhere that are made for 20p, um, and then people are kind of completely sick of that whole way of thinking and, and the waste and, and the colossal kind of waste that we have in fashion. Um, and then, you know, you walk to the beach down the road and you'll find shoes washed up and you're just like, wow, what have we come to, you know? And people are really starting to think differently about the world and the planet now. And I think that's a good thing. Um, and we don't make probably more than about 150 pairs a year, which in a factory scale is like nothing. It's like a blink of an eye. But what we do make is we make them really well and we make sure that every stitch in the leather is... You know, if if it's one of the things that Al taught me, probably the thing that's kind of, in a way, attracted me to it in the beginning was, you know, how it's kind of a skill that you kind of can pick up and then really make it your own and make it make something really beautiful and spend your time and energy on things that are going to be around for a long time and you know, the customer becomes a kind of a friend almost because you get to know them on a kind of more of a personal level on the one hand, but also you're making something that's designed to last and be repairable and last a long time. And um, there's kind of a, I suppose there's sort of like a kind of a feeling of belonging in that, isn't there? That you've got a purpose, Um, not just in the skill, but in what you're making. And I think that's what attracted me to it, looking back on it. Um, you mentioned making them well and making them to last. How do you do that as opposed to not making them well and making, not making them to last? Because so many shoes now are made, I mean, they they last three months and they're ready for the yeah. bin. I mean, yeah. what, what's the difference really? I think that you can cut corners. I think you can fast track what you're doing. I think you can get good at what you do and then you can lose the ethos behind it and cut corners. But 
what I always learned with Al was that every single hole that you make in the leather stays there forever. So if you're not going to do it right, you do it again. You know, it's it's making something that is going to stand the test of time. And if you sew it badly or if you sand through some of the sole stitching or, you know, there's all sorts of mistakes that one can make, is actually giving it the time and not rushing what you're doing and using materials that are the best materials that you can use um, that then brings, kind of unites an end shoe that's going to kind of be, you know, very long-lasting, really. I mean, if we cut if we cut our material costs and lined them in something Gore-Tex or, I don't know, just a plastic-based material, you know, then you're cutting a corner, aren't you? It's it's really sticking to the kind of core philosophy of making them to be good for the feet, but also using the best materials you can um, and not scrimping on that quality, really. So a well-made pair of shoes, how long would they potentially last? And how many times can you repair them, resole them, refurbish, whatever? Well, uh, it's a good question. It's a question that we get asked on a daily level because essentially leather is a material that you have to look after. So if you're somebody like my dad, for example, he needs a repair every year. He barely polishes them, I don't think. Sorry, dad, if you're listening, but he doesn't. And, you know, he wades (laughs) through puddles and, and up tracks and down tracks and all over the place. And the soles wear down and you know, we can repair the shoe as many times as you want. But because the upper is soft, there's no stiffeners in them. There's no um, plastic-based kind of toe puffs or anything like that. They're soft and then they're lined in in a really high-quality suede or leather. So looking after that leather is really key. And then we can restitch them as much as they need it. Leather does degrade and it does, um, you know, it can become kind of, brittle if you don't oil it and polish it and look after it so we always give quite a lot of care instructions with a finished pair of shoes because if you look after the uppers we can just repair the soles as many times as they need it and essentially people have come back after 30 40 years and they're still going strong and at that point the initial investment doesn't look that large does it no I had one customer who came and she said she'd had them for five years and she said I've worked it out they're costing me 13p a day and it's getting cheaper every year because they they keep going throughout the years you know I've had one repair one resole and they're still going strong and they're getting better with use actually because the leather is molded to her feet even more and she's even more comfortable with it so yeah I mean you know, shoes are an extension of our kind of personality and style, but they're also an extension of our foot. And yeah, we have to definitely look after our, our bodies, but also, you know, our shoes are the same thing, aren't they, really? Looking after them means that it's they'll look after you. It's interesting trying to balance the sort of sense of well-being mm. against our sort of desire for continuous new things. Mm. I do have that. Um, yeah on my mind a lot because just for myself you know on a total personal level you know sometimes I'll make myself a pair then I'll get sick of that kind of color or or type of leather and I'll make something else and it is 
a natural human instinct, isn't it, to kind of like new things? And so, where where does that kind of, you know, where where does that kind of leave you when you're the consumer and you want something new and you want to feel good about yourself? And I don't know. I mean, I have customers on their fifteenth, sixteenth pairs, and you know, they use them for different things. That there's a kind of a timelessness in what we do in in our shoes and in our shop because they're essentially the same designs but there'll be a new leather that will come in and it will spark somebody's imagination and they'll come in and they'll have a wedding they want to go to and they want a tartan um pair of boots or something you know it's it's kind of nice to be able to feed that kind of creativity and flair and love for for things but also kind of make something that's still going to last and I guess you can pass them down to people and pass them along if you um but yeah nothing we do is kind of on a grand scale um but yeah I I do I do think about that a lot because just on my you know sometimes if I'm buying clothes for myself you know it's like are you buying into that kind of consumerist thing or is it just, you know, is it a feel-good thing? You know, it's, it's all good things to think about, isn't it? You did mention that you had customers who had 15, 16 pairs. <laughs> yeah. So, so clearly, I mean, good for business. Um, yeah. Not quite getting the shoes for life idea. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess people people find it hard to wear anything else once they've worn our shoes because they're so natural and... and fitting to the feet then you get addicted to that feeling as well so then you want different pairs for different occasions don't you and um yeah I mean it's uh it's kind of nice that people can have the choice you know that they can kind of come back to you and have this one pair of brown boots that goes with everything and they look after them really well and they wear them for 30 years and that's their one pair but it's also nice to kind of be able to provide something for someone that is you know you get their measurements out we've got all every customer that we've ever made we've got their foot measurements and file them away and we keep them on our um in our system really and you know they become like a customer for life and I suppose I don't know what the average person's shoe wardrobe actually I don't know how many pairs of shoes people have but I don't know, 15, 16, I guess, maybe is a lot in some ways, but in a way not, because some people have every trainer that comes out every three months, they'll camp outside the store and they'll, you know, pay yeah. hundreds for trainers that are made by for very little, but high fashion. And there's a difference, isn't there, between a handmade shoe and a factory-made trainer or a factory-made shoe. It's a completely different way of thinking, and it's a different clientele as well, I suppose. But, um, yeah, I think, I mean, we haven't had anyone come outside our door, but we do we do have some super fans that, you know, are waiting for the next leather that comes in with a new design. And as a maker and designer, I think sometimes the hardest thing is to kind of create new stuff and and create new designs and spend the time sitting there making new patterns and things because you're always trying to catch up with work and that's something that I have to contend with a lot is 
that kind of feeling that you know you want something new and you want to kind of um put your creativity into something and if we were making black shoes black shoes black shoes every day then that would eventually kind of do your head in but it's because we get so many different people that have got different stories different reasons for buying them different choices you know that's what makes it a bit exciting and you know as time's gone on it's kind of you know there needs to be a bit of space to create new stuff to make that exciting for us as well so um yeah that's a balance to be struck i think yeah i mean there is i mean i can see that you wanting to be creative and there has to be a business and if we were to be sort of totally virtuous and sustainable we'd all be wearing the same little chore coats and wearing a single pair of little brown boots and I mean, it's a sort of grand idea, but we all know that it's not really going to happen. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, there's changes that are happening in the world, isn't there? And, you know, people, yeah, I mean, we're we're humans living a human existence and the world is changing around us and we're having to kind of um, realign ourselves with that as well and there's a lot of guilt you know about the world and what we're doing to it and all of this and you know I think I feel really lucky to be working in an industry which is an industry still you know making something which hopefully won't get washed up on a beach one day you know they're they're cherished and they're loved and that's what in a way is the kind of um the satisfaction behind making them because you put love and energy into that and then they live a life where they're appreciated and loved and eventually they'll degrade their leather and they'll degrade with the person <laughs> i don't know or not you know passed on or whatever yeah. well, i suppose i mean if they're if they're deeply personal and made just for one person i mean yeah. they'll sort of be put aside the day that person no longer exists and that's it yeah maybe just a memento but uh... Well, we've got some of Alan's pairs because, of course, he obviously made a lot of pairs for himself. And then we buried a pair under a tree because, you know, put it in the garden and, and you know, it goes back to the earth or whatever. I mean, it's, yeah, we've had some people that have passed away and their their partner or, or family members brought the shoes in and they've said, what do we do with them? You know, they're kind of not even being worn very much. Um, this one lady had two pairs and they were really kind of unusual looking as well and you know that so we kind of said okay we'll take them back and then we'll kind of um resell them all you know and pay the person back the money and and they went and got sold and some I mean it's amazing really people will come in the door and it's like there's a pair of shoes waiting for them they'll just gravitate towards one pair on a shelf and suddenly they'll just fit them and out they go you know it's it's kind of a it's happened so many different times that it's kind of like wow okay <laughs> you know maybe we are doing the right thing because yeah it's there's a lot of kind of synchronicities that happen and um I think that often gives you a bit of a kind of yeah sense that you're doing okay in the world you know um there is a kind of feeling of old world luxury over what you do as well, I think. Mm. I was thinking about this yesterday. I was doing a, a another podcast recording 
um, about where something is made by a craftsman with limited time, but skills and the materials are also limited. Uh, so there's only so many can be made, which kind of fits very well with what you're doing. But mm. it's also made so personally to a person that that's not something you can get everywhere. And mm. you mentioned sneakers, which nowadays are sort of considered a, a luxury item, but really because they only make so many and people have to scrabble to try to get them. Mm. But they're not actually luxury because they're not well-made or made mm. from unique materials or made for a person. No. They're just a sort of artificially The brands are done, though, yeah. People buy into a brand and into a name, essentially. And, you know, I don't know what my name, Red or Ruth Emily Davy, means to the whole rest of the world, but I think um, I think if we made things that were in great quantity... I think we'd lose what we're essentially about, which is making on that small scale level. And, you know, we were actually copied a couple of years ago um, by Chinese, um, well, by a factory essentially in China. And this was when Alan was actually alive. And he, um, one of his most famous designs is the Chandel, which is essentially a... Um, an open toe, but with a, like a sort of a loop that goes over the big toe and it, and it straightens out a bunion. So they're kind of a unique shoe that is designed to, with a specific purpose to, you know, help a bunion straighten out, which it's helped, the Chandel design has helped loads of people all across the world. And we've had hundreds of people come back and say, oh, I've, you know, I can feel my toes again, or I've got, you know, really good muscle, um, dexterity in my feet and you know we've had loads of glowing kind of um reports back and anyway this design is unique to us we're the only people that make it and Alan created it in 1992 and you know this one day somebody came in and um said oh did you know they've you know your designs are for sale on this sort of cheap site and and it went viral it was like all these sites popping up um you know, selling, well, essentially they they took the photos from our websites and used the photos to sell a cheap plastic version of, of our work. So people were getting in touch saying, hey, I've ordered shoes, you know, three months ago, never heard a thing. And, and we realised that they were buying them from these cheap sites, seeing our photos and thinking it was us and that we'd sold out and wow. got them made in another country. for, And people were getting the shoes back. Um, eventually getting their order through the post and it would be a, a plastic copy of our work you know literally copied to the app you know to everything but done really badly and you know we ordered a dummy purchase just to see what it was you know what they were all about and you know the whiff of plastic that you got out of the bag when you opened the bag it was they're just so toxic and and awful representations of our work so it was like this really horrible thing but it was really interesting as well because it was like, wow, how, you know, people are know about us now all over the world because of this, like, fake copy, you know. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was it was quite a journey because you'd have to shut down each website when it popped up and people, all of our supporters were, you know, furious about it and sending in these kind of cheap sites. It would be like 
cheapchicnow.com or just fashion now and they'd pop up every day so they they'd have like these <sighs> new sites that pop up and um yeah it was a, it was a interesting kind of experience because it kind of elevated our uh work in a way because it's so our work is so well made in comparison to these cheap terrible copies um but it also showed a lot like what type of clients order from us and there's some people that know about the copies and buy them anyway because they're just like well I don't want anything that lasts I want something that I can just wear for a bit and then throw away essentially um or you'd have somebody you know one woman and she said well they're vegan you know they're plastic it's like well yeah they are they are vegan they're definitely vegan but they're falling off your feet (laughs) so um yeah interesting experience and you know we so Alan and I after that experience because obviously he was furious about it you know his designs being stolen and and you know essentially his photos which he was very proud of being stolen as well and you know we looked at all the options with lawyers and with all of this sort of stuff which didn't end you know you you can't really take on kind of Chinese copyright laws because there aren't any there's there's yeah it's a whole thing um but what it made us do was actually see that there's some people that really wanted an off-the-shelf version of our bespoke um you know where they come in and they have their feet measured they're given the consultation time of sitting there going through all the colors everything else but some people just wanted our designs in a brown size six so we actually started um a company um called the original shandles company which is still running today because i'm it's kind of in tandem with my bespoke work but um we make kind of four colors um sort of 12 different sizes and people can just essentially buy them and they're still made handmade by us but they're made kind of on a clicker press where you can click out the leather and sort of hand cutting it out and it makes them a bit cheaper basically and that's been our only kind of taste of making things on a bigger scale but even that it takes a lot of time and energy and right you know getting the patterns together and you know organizing and it still requires several people behind that process to actually create this pair of shoes. So, you know, we went a bit mad. At first we had this crowdfunder and we kind of um, were selling them for too cheap, really. But to get a a bit of kind of um, publicity behind it, we kind of did this crowdfunder to to sort of fund the first um, hundred pairs or something. And you know, sent it out to all these different people and got loads and loads of orders back from it and it sort of started us off. But it was all like this complete chaos, you know, in in the workshop it was like, right, size six in a green, you know, yellow, you know, and it was it was mental and I thought, well yeah, that's what a factory even slightly feels like. I don't think that's what I I don't think that's what I'm about, personally. And it was like this slight thing because it was like it it was great because it helped us take on two apprentices which was you know really great created work in the area even on a very small scale you know that's that's a really good thing um but yeah to not to not lose 
some of that personality behind what you're doing and putting the the sort of energy into the making you know it's an enjoyable process making a pair of shoes if you if you're you don't have a time constraint and you're sitting there and you can put you know your actual energy into it and yeah i think i think there's yeah definitely a balance to be struck between making handmade and um yeah kind of making them kind of in any scale i suppose really and knowing your customer it was it was suddenly a bit strange sending them to somebody and we didn't have any clue about who they are or you know cuz we're so used to being like having a conversation with the person so um yeah interesting experience <laughs> Mm. I'm surprised you managed to sort of cope with uh, with the copying business. I mean, mm-hmm. in some way, I suppose it was quite validating because someone far away had seen what you were making and thought, mm. oh, that's going to be a good thing to copy. Yeah. But it must have been an absolute nightmare to deal with. It was a nightmare. And the nightmare part of it was really having to sit there and reply to all these angry people who were outraged they hadn't received their shoes and actually explain that we are not the people that you ordered from so and and reporting websites we were ending up it was like a full-time job just reporting these sites and getting angry about it and in the end it still happened you know they still pop up now and again now but it's lessened a bit and in the end I decided I don't want to sit there getting angry about it it's actually taken me away from my own clients and my own you know headspace and happiness and doing what I do so I'm not going to sit there getting angry about it. I'm going to actually do what I do much even better and enjoy it. Mm. And, you know, I think in a way you have to let let it go a little bit, really. Um, much as it's difficult to do that, I think it, I had to sort of have a bit of distance between it as well because, yeah, it happens. You know, it's it's awful that it happens and it's... It's totally unethical, and it's, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be allowed. Um, you know, I went to sort of my council, my MP, and all of this, and nothing really did. There was no sort of way of fighting it. Really, being a tiny little business in Wales, you you can't really. You'd have to spend thousands and thousands on lawyers and and years of your energy, and we just didn't have that capability. And you'd probably not even get anywhere then because these, exactly. these yeah. guys basically don't exist. Well, yeah, there's just somebody, you know, putting up a new, you know, website. I, I mean, I don't know how it all works, but it didn't feel like a good use of time to get angry about it more than for the, you know, more than necessary. Um, and then the fact that people were contacting you about not having received them also mm. shows that some of the guys selling them didn't actually intend to ship anything. No, so no. it was a scam that way as well. It is, yeah. I mean, they were 30, I think they were about 30 quid a pair or something, not even that, maybe 25, 30 quid a pair, which actually is quite a lot. It's a good for deal. The, for the, <laughs> yeah. But it's also a lot for what you, I mean, when you see a pair that's actually, because you see them in charity shops now and again, and I always look at them and go, oh my gosh, that is, and the fact that what bothers me about it actually more than anything is that people could ever think that that 
would be of her that we would make, you know, that we would put our name to. I mean, it, were they copying yeah. your branding as well? They they photoshopped the logo out of the sole on the picture, um, but no, they they did try and use the word Shandles, which is our, you know, we've um, had that kind of um, protected and everything. But yeah, they weren't copying the branding. No, not really. No, it's more the design and the photos right. and the way the photos were taken. That kind of thing. Now, I'm very curious about your bespoke process. Mm. Does that necessarily involve taking a trip to the little town in Wales and visiting you? Does it involve taking a, I don't know, making a cast of your foot? I mean, just how how does this work? I'm it's, curious. It is. Um, we have got lots of different ways, but the most old school, normal way is to get a pen and paper and actually draw around your foot at home. So that enables us to kind of get orders from all over the world. So essentially you're just, you know, doing some very simple drawings of your feet, the measurements of your feet, the widest and the tallest part of your foot. So that's your arch and your metatarsal arch. And then we look at your measurements. You send them over to us. Um, people email them. People email photos of their feet, casts of their feet. But all all we really need is is the measurements and the drawings of your feet to actually see what size um, you are in our sizes, because our sizes differ from a lot of other shoes. Because they are rounded, people often have to size up, for example, in length. Um, and so what we do is we have a look at your a last over your foot measurement and then we send you a fitting pair from stock so you might be an eight and a half wide for example and we'll send you a fitting pair not everybody wants a fitting pair sent to them some people just want to skip that bit of the process and actually just have them made but we always say that it's slightly more risky because if you haven't tried on a pair you're not going to know how much deeper you want the toe box for example or how much tighter you want at the heel so it's kind of preferable if we send you a pair from stock in your size or closest to your size and then we send colour samples and leathers and um, you try them on we email back and forth as to what you like what you don't like about them um, can you do this can you bring it in a bit here can you make this higher and then we um, choose the colours and start making your shoes and then send them out to you so that's how a lot of people order from us when they're, you know, in the US or Europe or anywhere else. Um, people do travel far and wide to come here. I had three women come from Texas, literally to get their shoe measurements done. They booked the whole holiday around it, you know. They wow. arrived. They, they, yeah. Some people are dedicated and <laughs> want, want the experience. And it's always nice that people do, you know, make that journey. And if they're in the UK, they often do, because if you come to the workshop, it means that you can kind of really see all the different options and have the experience of trying different things on and seeing what you like, what you don't like about certain leathers. And it, it is an experience. And I think people want that a bit more nowadays. So, it, yeah, it brings a lot of personality. It's part of the full package, isn't it? I mean, yeah. if you get all that extra, and, hmm. uh, I mean, for, for someone like me, it's a whole new story to tell. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's a story. So I mean, when they say, nice yeah. shoes, Nick, I can say, well, yeah, I went to this yeah, place in Wales. Went all the way to yeah. Wales for them. <laughs> yeah, it's nice for us as well to be able to meet the person you're making for. Because we always, we've always got this running joke in the workshops that, you know, you're starting out making the shoes and you're thinking, well, they've chosen these really random colours together. You know, like, it might be, I don't know, cream with, I don't know, olive green vamps or something you know and we're like how are these gonna how are these gonna work what are they gonna look like and you'll start making them and they'll come together and the the shoe you always know when the shoe is gonna be right because it looks like the person (laughs) and I don't know what it is it's just like there's just a feeling to it it's the way that they are shaped at the end or the way the last sits in them they just end up looking like the person and when they look like the person you know that they're gonna fit really well (laughs) And sometimes we get it wrong or sometimes we have to do a full remake because, you know, the leather hasn't reacted quite as well as we want it to or, you know, the fit isn't quite perfect. So we go back and we remake them um, and then they'll look like the person. (laughs) So, I mean, generally, because of how much kind of time we put into the fitting, we get it right and we know how leathers work and we know how you know if somebody's got kind of diabetes and really sensitive feet for example they're not going to want something that's really heavy on the toe they'll want something soft something that's not going to um kind of yeah um push against their toes um which they can't even feel that kind of thing you know there's ways that we make it very bespoke and we know what works a lot of the time with people there's certain leathers that we've worked with for sort of several years so we know that that's going to work for their lifestyle or um whatever choices that they yeah that they make so we kind of spend so much time on that side of things that we end up getting making something that they're so super happy with at the end that you know that's the that's the goal really isn't it for both parties really so if someone comes into the shop you get talking to them they show interest is there at some point that you know what they're going to ask for before they are actually ask for it? Not always, no. I always, I often get surprised by people um, because the most kind of, I don't know, straightforward-looking kind of, I don't know, um, black-suited man can come in and order a, a gold pair of shoes. It's just because we're providing all these different options you know, and then you get some people that are really flamboyant looking and they just want the most simple toned down shoes that you've ever seen. So it, it's so different. We're constantly surprised by customers coming in and it's really always quite a nice surprise because it's kind of nice to kind of mix up stereotypes a little bit and um, enjoy the fact that, you know, people have got these kind of... these kind of uh what's the word like these needs these creative needs inside them that they can't normally bring out you know and then they'll be able to choose something and they'll just go completely mad or they'll you know they'll choose something that they've never been able to choose before so it's a nice it's a nice thing there's no sort of real trend necessarily and there's no like yeah there's you know, we, we'll have, like, a load of people ordering purple shoes one year and go, why is there so many purple shoes? So there's the odd 
year like that but there's there's no kind of plan to any of it it just is whatever people come in and choose and you never really know who's going to walk through the door and it's it's nice that kind of people are attracted to certain designs and then not to others you know it kind of yeah it feeds the inspiration really because what you're really saying there is that you're not really in the fashion shoe business at all although sometimes it might sort of yeah something like, i mean <laughs> yeah but yeah not really i mean i i do I do think that people come in and find them fashionable, actually. But I think that we're a little bit against fashion, in a sense. Because, you know, when someone walks into the shop, I don't kind of... I let them just walk around and I, I don't actually even kind of tell them all the information unless they really want to know. I, I let people see it for themselves. And I kind of like that, that it's not pushed on you and it's not like you know, big advertising, you know, kind of, this is what it's about. It's about kind of letting the work speak for itself. And yeah, I mean, fashion is kind of, it's, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because it's kind of goes in these different leaps and bounds. But I think that's partly me as well. Like, I don't want to add to this kind of crazy world. But I also want it to be something unique that people can choose and that it's it's different to anywhere else. Um, does that answer the question? <laughs> if, if you're only making 150 pairs a year, mm. you really only need 150 customers. So yeah. you don't need to appeal to everyone. You don't need to sort of go fishing for thousands and thousands of customers because no. you can't actually supply them. Well, no, we can't really. I mean, we're we we are small scale. We we it's very hard to say no to any orders that come in, but there are occasionally times where I, I say to people, okay, it's it's we're not going to be the right shoe for you, um, for whatever reason. It might be the sort of complications that they've got with their feet, in which case I send them to another shoemaker that I know that does that kind of speciality. Um, but you know, we we do. I guess we do have a lot of people with problem feet because that's when people value um, something that's made for them. But I think that it's always nice when we can make something just because somebody loves it and they walk in and they just love the work. And I think that, I mean, I've got a shop, I run a a shop and um, employ people, you know, it's it's important that we have orders coming in every week, but I don't want it to be something where you're a slave to what you do. And I don't like pushing it on people. I I like it to be their choice, I suppose. But that's me as a person as well. I think I I like it to be kind of like a, like a two way thing, I suppose, you know, you're definitely not a hard-nosed businesswoman. <laughs> I'm not. I fully take, yeah, no credit for that at all. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, saying that, it's a quiet time of year and, you know, we do need orders because it's our orders have dropped a bit because we've spent this year doing that, this building. I've been less, ava- less available to, for people to have their shoe fittings for. So it's kind of 
you know, building that back up a little bit again. We've got the whole Brexit thing. We've had wars breaking. You know, there's a lot of money worries. There, there are, you know, post-COVID pandemic stuff. Like, there are things that are happening that mean you have to think, right, okay, so strategically how are we going to get our four orders a week or whatever it is that sustains us, you know? And you kind of have to realise as well, we're in a tiny little, you know, that we're not that well known, really. I mean, people travel to see us and we have a client base that stretches over 20 years, but also all of Alan's clients. So that's 40 years worth of, you know, so what sustains us is people coming back to us and reordering, which at this time of year happens a lot because you start the year off and you kind of want a new lease of life or something. And that's a lot of the time where we get orders from repeat customers or they have repairs done to their current shoes and they'll say, oh, you know, have you got another nice blue leather like this pair or, you know, so that kind of keeps us going. And I think if we didn't have that, we probably would be having to advertise all the time. Um, So, yeah, you're right. We don't need that many clients and orders every year but we do need the right amount so we're not bit so busy but we're also not kind of um scrabbling around for the work essentially so yeah it is a balance just like everybody you know that's running their own business has to kind of contend with i suppose yeah now is there anything we haven't touched upon that we should have mentioned um just that I think that as an industry, um, shoemaking is classically kind of male-dominated and we get a lot of people that come in and they'll say, um, where's the man that makes the shoes? And you'll say, oh. it's actually me that makes them. And they'll say, no, no, where's the man that makes them? And they'll, you have to say it three or four times. <laughs> and it's always an interesting thing to me because it's kind of, you know, people are still thinking, okay, it's got to be a male, uh, you know, it's got, it's a male, it's a physical job, it must be a man that does it. And I think it's always interesting when that comes from a woman even, because we get quite a, a few women that ask that question. And I think that, and I always say, well, you know, here's Margot, my apprentice, she's, um, you know, started three, um, Hang on. She started five years ago, and JB, my other apprentice, started three years ago. And they're both women, and they're both really good at what they do. And it's a really hard job, but we do it. And I think that it's always kind of nice to kind of have that conversation and and realign people's thoughts about it a little bit, because it's a very traditional skill, and it is there's a lot of men that work in the industry but there's also a lot of female shoemakers that I know as well and I think that is um it's good for for that conversation to be happening basically thanks a lot Ruth it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you and uh, I can't tell you how much I fancy a pair of your shoes now oh <laughs> well, you'll have to come to Wales so, or around your feet but it's been really nice talking to you as well thank you Thank you, and uh, bye-bye for now. Bye.
And that's all for this week's episode of Garmology. If you'd like to check out my guest further, there's links in the show notes. There's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee, which is perfectly optional. I'm just pleased you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch, suggest a guest, just let me know what you think. It's uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. So until next week, bye-bye.